In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Sarah Drasner about using animation to build more intuitive interfaces and technical tips, tricks, and best practices for implementing them well. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 82. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast. I'm Adam and today it's my pleasure to be joined by Sarah Drasner. How's it going, Sarah? Hi, thanks for having me on. For anyone who uh, isn't familiar with you, you're quite prolific on the internet with your writing and teaching and stuff. But for anyone who doesn't know you, do you mind kind of introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, My name is Sarah Drasner. I work for Microsoft as a senior cloud developer advocate. Uh, My job is different in some ways from um, what I do in my spare time. I'm very active in open source, so I'm on the Vue core team. Um, I also am a staff writer and editor for CSS Tricks. Um, And um, I do a lot of work on CodePen and stuff. So uh, yeah, I do a lot of open source work, a lot of work with Vue. Um, a lot of work with animation, and you know, for my work job, um, I, I do a lot of stuff with like serverless functions and things like that for Azure. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of all over the place, but it's fun. Awesome, yeah. So the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is you've done a lot of work in sort of the CSS animation space. Um, I think you you have a book on like designing SVG animations, right? Uh, not designing. I'm more of a developer. Okay, so implementing, building them out, which that's that's the part that I'm most interested in, to be honest. <laughs> Anyways, um, and then you have tons and tons of articles that have been on CSS tricks, uh, kind of teaching people how to do this stuff. So I thought it'd be awesome to sort of chat with you um, about some of that stuff and and see what we can learn. So, sure. I guess kind of the the first question that I have is. As sort of developers who are trying to like incorporate animations and transitions and stuff into our interfaces, a lot of the time I feel like we're approaching it from sort of a, I want to make this look flashier or fancier or, or something uh, perspective. And a lot of times that can make it hard to sort of know where to use it and, and what for. So I'd be interested in knowing if you have any sort of thoughts around where is the best place to sort of use this stuff and how can it be useful to the user versus just, you know, flashy? Totally. And I, I think actually you um, you hit the nail on the head that those two things definitely have to be separated because there are different types of animation. And the one that I think that most developers, most, you know, full stack developers have to focus on are the ones that are good for the user and are invisible animation. So animation that you don't even realize that something is being animated necessarily. Like if you've gone through a Stripe checkout flow, there's a lot of animation in a Stripe checkout flow, but you don't know that it's happening. It's just kind of a piece of the flow. They're revealing pieces of content to you depending on what you've chosen. Um, And it feels very fluid. It feels very natural. Um, the, The thing about animation that I love and that's hard about it is that as a human, you're biologically trained to notice something in motion. It's part of the reason why if you're reading an article and something, you know, some video is playing, it's so distracting. There's nothing, you know, you really can't even read the article anymore. You have to open dev tools and, you know, 
delete the div that it's in or the iframe. <laughs> um, uh, because, you know, you are supposed to notice something in motion because you're supposed to eat things that are in motion or run away from things in motion. You're, that's, that's your biology. And then it's stronger than anything else. It's stronger than color. It's stronger than type. Um, those things can work in tandem with color and type for sure. But um, if you're making something that's part of your user interface, the point really isn't about you. It's not supposed to be about being flashy. It is really supposed to be about guiding the user. Um, so using animation to signify an event that they need to be paying attention to and being very careful to not use it if it's not the primary thing that they should be paying attention to. So that's one thing. And then there's another way of animating where it's the whole experience. So, and what I mean by that is a different type of animation. So like data viz, if you're doing something that takes over the entire screen and all your job is, is to communicate a transition of events in data visualization, you do want that animation to be slightly flashy in a way, like slightly, you know, something that commands your attention because all you're po focusing on is that data visualization and the way that that data moves from one space to another. Um, another example would be like, you know, if you have a, a site that's for a movie, let's say it's like Life of Pi or whatever, your job on that site is not to make someone click a button, it's to make someone excited about the movie. So doing a whole WebGL experience or like something where you're like, there was like a Hogwarts thing recently where you could fly through Hogwarts, like the whole point is flashy animation. That's totally different from something like, you know, filling out a form. So they, they have to kind of be treated differently in those two circumstances. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So as I was sort of preparing uh, for this conversation and, and I was thinking about this question, I started sort of poking around in apps that I use a lot, trying to look for things that I, I probably didn't notice before that I think are making a big difference in like my perception of it. And one of the examples that uh, I noticed right away that I thought was really interesting was like zooming on Google Maps, for example. It's one of those things where, you know, if you press that zoom button and it just jumps into the next zoom level, that doesn't give you like the same context that you're seeing like, okay, this is like the area that you're focusing on and you don't even notice it. So I'm curious if you have any other examples of, of things like that or things that transitions and animations can be used for and sort of helping the user use whatever you're building better um, that totally. you can think of. Yeah, actually, so I have a bunch of talks about this and also like um, address it in the book and also a few articles about this. Um, but what animation can be very good at doing is allowing for spatial awareness. So when you visit a site, your eye is tracking all over the site to try to kind of understand <clears throat> where you are in that virtual space. And so you are trying to create this mental map of where things are, where things go. And that's kind of part of the reason why sites start to look the same is that we all kind of have this imprint of like the logo goes on the top left, the call to action goes in the top right, the banner says the, the purpose of the thing. So, you know, for better or for worse, that's the reason why that happens is that it, it's easier for people to kind of understand where they are in that space. So anytime you flip from one event to another without allowing people to understand where they are in that space, it introduces a cognitive load. So they have to say like, okay, wait, where am I? And remap everything. If you don't do that and you use animation, what you can do when you zoom into something or keep things on the page, but move them around, it tends to feel better for the user because they're not remapping that space. They're not creating a cognitive load. They're saying, oh, that's just over there and I know where to get it. Um, 
for us developers, over there is just like us moving around some positioning and stuff. It's not a real over there. It's just yeah. like virtual. But that helps our user to know where things came from, where they're going, and keeping those consistent, right? If, if a drawer comes out from the left and you put it away and it goes out into the right, it's it's very dis it's you know disconcerting and it's confusing. So keeping those things consistent with the way that things would be in real life, like if it comes from the left, it goes back to the left, and then they know, okay, I go go get that from the left. That can help the user feel like they're more in control when they're using their your site and feel closer to where they feel like in their in flow state when they're using your yeah, site. Yeah, that makes it makes a lot of sense, and I think that's a really interesting way to sort of to think about animations when you're incorporating them into your app, like you're doing it to, to make, to sort of like reduce the cognitive load for people and to kind of limit distractions and, and help people sort of subconsciously understand things instead of have to think about things, which I, th I think is interesting because um, at sort of like a superficial level, it's easy to think of animations and stuff as being distracting layers on top of something and that you don't actually need them necessarily. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's interesting to me that like in reality, when like done right, it actually accomplishes, accomplishes the opposite thing that you might see someone on hacker news complaining about, well, this site is too flashy. Just show, show me the content or whatever, you know, like a lot of developers right. might have that attitude. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's really like, you know, in terms of animation, just like anything, it's not one size fits all. So uh, there are, set, you know, depending on your brand, your, you know, users, what they're trying to do. I mean, you should really ultimately be trying to help them get to where they're going, whether that be, you know, through the form so that they can book an airline flight or, you know, to, you know, uh, you know, through Hogwarts, <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever that goal is. And when people complain about that, they're totally right. It, and it's not that they, I think it's not that they hate animation. I think they hate animation that's done improperly. Um, which I don't like either, even, you know, as I think people are like, oh, you're an animation person. You must love all animation. Check out this crazy animation I made. It's like, yeah, I do for like an experiment, but when it comes to a site, if I'm if I am like on booking.com, I'm not I'm not picking on booking.com, but if I'm on like a site like that and then something like is crazy and goes all over the screen, even as an animation person, I'm like that's not really what I was looking for here. I just need to make a booking. So, um I, I, again, I, I shouldn't even even use their name because it, it's not about booking.com. Um, but, you know, that that is a typical thing that I do see is kind of like something being overdone or not, you know, used for. Animation can be really useful and people not really thinking about it, its usefulness. They're thinking more about what they can do with it, um, which which is also cool, but, you know, in the right place. Yeah, love it. Um, so... Maybe something that would be interesting to talk about that's kind of taking us down a little bit more technical direction is um, as developers and in interacting with CSS and stuff, we think of like transitions and animations as sort of like different terms that mean different things. I'm curious to know like how you think about the difference between those or if that is really just like a technical detail that we use or, you know, what falls into an animation category? What's a transition? I'd just love to hear your thoughts on sort of the differences. No, I mean, that is actually a really good uh, thing to bring up. And I do uh, start off a lot of articles explaining the differences between those two because I think people get confused, rightly so. Um, so a transition 
is when you have something at a, party, a starting point and you have something at an ending point and your transition is merely describing what happens in those, that in-between state. It's just, uh, it's kind of declarative in a sense because it's basically, it's not telling it step by step, like go here, do this, run over there, do this other thing. It's just, and it's not even in control of the, of the uh, beginning and ending states. It's just to tell you if you're going to move this around, here's how you should do it. Um, an animation can act like a transition, which is why it's confusing. An animation can describe just the in, the in between between one state and another. But typically, what an animation does is it has m multiple steps, or it has many things that it's describing. It's describing the end or what to do in these spaces in between. So you have things like what happens if there's a delay. You know, does it fill in the space from before or does it snap back to the ending state? Um, what happens when you're done? What, ha you know, what does it, you know, does it go backwards or forwards? Uh, can you repeat it? Can you repeat it in an alternate way? Um, does it have multiple steps of execution? Um, all of those things make an animation a little bit more like, you know, if you, like, let's say you are using tools or something, the, you know, a transition is a saw where an animation is a power saw. You could use it for the same thing, but it's way more powerful and you can do way more stuff with it. If you were going to build a giant house, you'd probably want a power saw, not a regular handsaw. Um, so, you know, using the right one in, you know, in either circumstance is really important. Okay. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I guess, um, for me personally, I feel like I've haven't really done a lot with CSS animations. I feel like I'm always reaching for transitions. And I think a lot of that is because I just not skilled in this area. Right. So I'm usually sticking to like the, the really simple sort of stuff, but can you think of any examples, I guess, of, of maybe things that are almost that seem simple, but require to be implemented with animations versus transitions. Like what's the threshold that you hit with, uh, you know, a fairly, common problem where you might have to jump to an animation instead of a transition. Sure. I mean, I think transitions are really useful for a UI UX kind of scenario, um, especially, you know, when we're probably going to talk about view when you have things like hooks um, where you can, you know, execute, like you already have the logic for like this thing is going to open and you know, what happens in between. So transitions can be really, really good for that. Animations. Um, I tend to use, in doing something a little bit more fanciful. And when I say fanciful in a more um, practical way, what I usually do is I for a loading state, I need an animation. So anytime I need something repeating, anytime I need something that's like entertaining the user while there's background, like fetching things from a server, I'm gonna use a loader and for, an, for that I need an animation because I need something that's a little bit more engaging so they're forgetting that something's happening. Like yeah. by the time they've watched a three second animation, they're like, that was a cool animation, oh, it's done. But like if they're sitting there for a three second animate, for three seconds, they're like, is it broken? Should I hit the button again? Um, so that's one case. Another case is when a form has been submitted and it's successful, I tend to try to give them a little bit more of a flash of like, you did it, good job. And that might be a little bit more involved. So it sure. might mean something with a bouncing ease or something that kind of has a more elastic sense, you know, in terms of easing structures and stuff, because I want them to have a dopamine rush in getting things done well on the sites that I'm at. Um, I don't wanna be like, you know, I worked at, on one site where if you clicked a button and you submitted a form that gave 
you're, where you're giving your information, the button just turned gray. Mm-hmm. And that that's just like such a letdown as a user. You're like, I just gave you my information. Like, what happened? Like, did it go through okay? Like, are you going to spam me now? Like, I always have a lot of trepidation when I give people my information on the internet. I want to know, first of all, it was successful. Second of all, good job. We're like happy to be partnering with you. Thank you for your information. Uh, You know, maybe fourth of all, we're not going to spam you. Or fifth of all, here's another place on our site you can go now that you're done um, so that you're not just sitting there like, okay, now what? Um, So those, all of those things need to be coordinated and animation is way better at coordinating multiple events. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. What you're just saying there actually reminded me of of something I've had to do a few times that I can't decide if I should feel bad about when it comes to transitions and animations, which is say you have like um, an interaction where you have like a save button or something that has to make like an Ajax request back to the server. And usually it's really, really fast. So you don't need to really do anything to communicate to the user that oh it's working or whatever um but but sometimes maybe it's not but i've run into situations where i want to use like a loading spinner or something but there's not enough time for it to actually stay on screen long enough to even communicate to the user that loading is happening and -hmm. what i find myself doing in those situations is like artificially slowing down the interaction you know what i mean so even if the ajax request only took 60 milliseconds i might have the spinner show for 120 milliseconds or something just so that you can perceive it and i feel guilty about that because it feels like i'm making something slower for no reason so i'd be curious to know what your kind of opinion is on that sort of uh, yeah, I think that you have the right idea, but in the wrong order. Okay. Uh, so uh, what I would do if it's really usually fast, first of all, I make sure that that loader looks good if you just see it for a second. Um, you know, certainly like I've made loaders where like the entrance, that part of it is not exciting. Uh, so so like making sure that that, you know, that initial just seeing it for a second still looks okay. Um, the second thing I would say is I might add a set timeout but I would add it to the loader. So, you know, I'm, you know, if I'm seeing that like little flash and it looks unprofessional, I would add a set timeout onto the mounted hook of the loader saying like, okay, just wait for a hundred milliseconds before you start showing anything. So that will keep it from doing that. Yeah. Like uh, where, you know, that kind of looks bad, but if someone's on a 3g connection, they're going to be there for longer than 100 milliseconds. Then they get to see the whole loader and they don't even remember. 100 milliseconds is so short that they won't remember, you know, not seeing it for that amount of time. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development productivity and ship to production more frequently. CodeShip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. CodeShip is a great fit for your team, whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps, or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest continuous integration tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market. And CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. 
So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeShip a try and sign up for free today at CodeShip.com. I've been a user of CodeShip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. Something I think would be interesting to talk about too is just sort of some terminology stuff, I guess. You you talk a little bit about easing, uh, I don't even know what you call them, like easing functions or easings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For people who aren't like familiar with that, what does that actually mean? And, you know, when would you use different types of it or uh, yeah. just anything that you could share sure. more about that I'd be interested in? Sure. So um, I actually, um, I wrote for 24 ways an article about uh, animation and design systems uh, because people have, you know, giant systems where they like deal with branding colors, they deal with their fonts, so they don't have to like reinvent that on every single page. Even if you're using single file components or CSS and JS, you typically have some globals that you're not, you know, re-executing every single time you have a a new component. Um, So I suggest that people kind of figure out their easing functions for their site. Um, which means that you're you're figuring out what the style of animation that you're going to be using all over your site is because it really ties all of your animation together. It makes it feel like it's just it's like coming from one place. I also suggest making a few different timings you can plug into so that if you are you know creating something and you know you have a big team, you're not reinventing the wheel every single time you're making an animation. We think about all of these things in a really responsible way for things like line height, for things like fonts, but we don't tend to do that with animation. I think that's a mistake. So um, figuring out a couple of easing structures that really complement your branding, maybe one for uh, entrances, one for exits, and one's for entrances that are emphasized, like that, you know, when you, that submission or that like, you did it, uh, might want to be like a little bit more pronounced. Um, one reason why, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, animation, you bringing up CSS animation. I tend to use JavaScript because of the easing, uh, well, uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is support. Um, but another one is, um, you know, and certainly if you don't need anything really, really substantial, then, you know, don't work with JavaScript. But um, one thing that JavaScript has over CSS is when you're working with an easing function, it's basically following a path uh, that we call the cubic bezier. Um, and in CSS, those cubic beziers have two handles, which means that you can express that motion with a bit of, you know, a bit of a curve. And that kind of gives it some character rather than have it go linear across. Now, if you're working in JavaScript, you don't have the um, that kind of like, um, uh, what's it called? The conf- constraints of the two handles. You have multiple handles. So that means in JavaScript, with one line of code, you can create a bounce because you can use a bounce easing. Whereas in CSS, you would have to say, okay, in keyframes, go here, then 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 here. So um, you end up writing a lot less code for one simple movement, especially if you want a really beautiful characteristic of those easing values. You can also do back kind of easings, which means going out of the, you know, outside of the bounds of where, you know, CSS kind of allows you to live for those cubic bezier handles. So um, if you want to, if you're doing something simple and you're not doing that much stuff, definitely stick to CSS because you're not loading any kind of 
other libraries or anything. But if you want to make really beautiful easing structures, JavaScript allows you to do that in a way that CSS does not. So I think that's a really interesting topic because trying to animate things with JavaScript is something that has always sounded very intimidating to me versus CSS. Because with CSS, it feels like you're given just like a finite set of tools and you kind of tell it where you want things to be and you just sort of trust that the browser is going to do something sane with it and you you don't really like get so close to the metal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd be curious to understand more about how animating things with JavaScript even works like from a pure beginner's perspective because I don't know a lot about like are you changing like an inline style in like a for loop or you know what does it even look like and how do you do it in a performant way or what are sort of the web apis you have to interact with i would just love to learn more about that sure so yeah i um like like i said earlier if it's something simple like a transition or if it's just something like not a very complex animation i'll still stick to css um, unless i have some cross browser or something because javascript can also help with that um, so like SVG animations, I tend to use JavaScript because um, SVG animations and see like they're not the ones on the DOM nodes themselves are not supported in any kind of Microsoft browser right now. So moving to JavaScript means I get back to IE8 support. Um, so the, all that aside, in terms of JavaScript, it can be confusing and it can have, you know, there can be a lot of different ways of working, but there's kind of a lot of different tools and you pick the right tool for the right job. So um, when we're talking about JavaScript animation, we should separate things into um, sequential animation and game-like animation, physics-based animation, because there are libraries that do either and they both have their strengths and weaknesses. So in terms of, um, you know, kind of physics-based animation. In physics-based or game-based animation, what you do is you have something that you give mass and physics to and send it on its way. This can be really good for interruptible animation. Like let's say you have, you know, a chat head that you're moving around the screen with your finger, or you need to like be able to interrupt a nav opening and closing in the middle, in midstream. It does that very well. It's very good for interruptible animation. Um, It is also really good for just single movements that you'd like to make look realistic. It can be really beautiful motion because when you're doing something like staggering, you're in essence sending something on its way and then everything, uh, every subsequent element gets updated from the first one. So it ends up getting these like really beautiful cascading effects because they're getting that motion in essence for free. Um, I'll give you a demo of one of those things in action, react motion in action so that you can see what I'm talking about in the show notes. Sounds good. Um, I tend to more often though use sequential animation because I can fine tune every piece of that process and it's less code to write and less confusing than CSS animation. So like I know working with JavaScript can be a paradigm shift for a lot of people, but something like Greensock, which I tend to talk about a lot because it's been around forever and it's got great support. It deals with cross-browser inconsistencies. It you know deals with those like bad IE eight things. It deals with transform origin issues. Um, you can you know they've done like a million plugins. They basically have a leg up on all of the other animation libraries because they've been around so long. And the way that you write them is very declarative, like CSS. You accept one major cool thing about it, I think, is that you're no longer writing your keyframes and applying them in two different places, like you're doing in CSS. 
what, what happens with those is that they tend to get further away from each other in the file the longer that you work with them. And then the CSS tends to get kind of like, okay, if you want to add another animation to that element, you have to add a subsequent delay and then another delay. But what, if, what happens if you change the timing? And animation's all about changing timing. That's basically all you do. Then you have to go back and figure out all of those subsequent delays. Um, rather than doing that, JavaScript allows you to have a thing called a timeline where things just naturally follow each other in that timeline. You don't have to write that kind of stuff. <clears throat> You're applying all of the things in one place. You have those complex easings, and it can be as simple as one line of code to do something that in CSS would take 20 or 30 lines of code. So, um, you know, I have a few courses that kind of run through the nitty gritty of what all of those things are, but JavaScript just has so many things to offer. So, yeah, that's part of the reason why I say if you're going to start chaining things or you're getting to something more complex that you want to look really beautiful, that's when I start to say, like, maybe you should be thinking about green sock. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that that's a question that I was actually going to ask, too, is just kind of when you would choose to use CSS for animations versus JavaScript. So I think we, we covered that pretty well. I'm still kind of curious about just, like, building the right mental model and understanding the mechanics of what you're actually doing to a DOM element with JavaScript to animate it. Like, are you actually changing, like, the CSS style of that and hoping the browser like redraws it fast enough to look smooth? Or is there like a whole world of stuff the browser can do that I don't even have an idea how to work with? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, both actually. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of animation libraries do manipulate CSS under the hood. Sometimes they don't and they're applying transforms like through request animation frame. So uh, React Motion uses like inline styles most of the time. You can also work with it in other ways, but that's the typical way of working with it. Um, for GreenSock, they're using request animation frame loops to enact a thing called a matrix transform. So you might be familiar with transforms when you work with um, CSS, you know, uh, using width and height and um, uh, you know, kind of t top and left are not the most performant way of moving things around on a browser. Using transforms is much more performant. Using matrix transforms and matrix calculations allows you to fine tune all of these things. So um, the problem that we get in with transforms when we're working in CSS is that there's a stacking order for transforms. And so they will, if you're moving multiple things or changing a lot of things at once, you tend to get into this problem of one thing happening before another thing when you really want them to occur at the same time. So what GreenSock allows you to do, what GreenSock's doing under the hood is applying all of them at the same time with a matrix transform. So it's in one file, it's in one pass. The problem with matrix, and you can, to be clear, you can write those in React Motion in any of these other things, but matrix transforms are not the most human readable thing in the entire world. Having that abstracted away from you is something you want. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in GreenSock, you could say like, okay, over here, we're going to do, you know, moving this on the X scale, moving this on the Y scale. And then like in, you know, half a second later, also change the scale. And it's like, okay, I got that. So, in, you know, it compiles that all together. And in that request animation loop, it you know, kind of applies those at different times through those matrix transforms. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, something that you touched on that I is another topic I wanted to get into actually is um, sort of understanding 
what properties are safe to animate versus maybe safe isn't even the right word. Which ones are just better uh, to animate because they're faster and the browser uh, can handle them better? Because I know personally, I've run into so many situations where uh, it feels like I have to animate something that I, I'm apparently not supposed to animate and I can't come up with an alternate solution. You know what I mean? Right, so right. Um, I think it'd be good to first maybe talk about what sort of the recommended um, properties are to mm -hmm. transition and animate and maybe why those are good. Sure. And then maybe we can get into um, how to solve certain problems that feel like they're unsolvable without animating things you're not supposed to animate. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so the, the properties that cause the least amount of repaints and the least amount of layout triggers are uh, opacity and transforms. And if it sounds bumming that there's just two of them, know that you can get a lot done with opacity and transforms. I do these like crazy, crazy demos and they're all just opacity and transforms. Um, transforms have a ton of things in them. They have things like scale, things like skew, things like, you know, X and Y values. They have things like Z values. Uh, there's rotate, there's rotate, you know, X and Y and things like that. So you can actually do a, a huge amount of stuff with a transform. Um, the other one is opacity because you're not actually, basically the browser doesn't have to repaint on every single frame what's going on. So if you use something like width, height, top, left, um, the browser, every single tick that it's, you know, um, when it's like painting it onto the page, it has to re-understand where all of those things on the page is. Whereas with transforms, it's basically leaving it where it is and then moving it around from there. Yeah. So um, those those transforms can be really, really helpful. So um, is the reason that those are better is just because of the nature of what they do in the sense that, you know, transforming or translating an element or scaling or whatever never affects any of the elements around it, right? It never affects like the the layout of the other elements on the screen and the browser just sort of understands like no matter what this transform is set to I can still draw everything else in the exact same position that would have been if there was no transform yeah it's it has to do with that but it has to do with the element itself too it's not re it's not redrawing that element either it's just literally taking that element and you know moving it around in a sense that like it's not with width and height and top and left you're actually creating the layout like deciding where that lives on the page and this is you know kind of pulling that out and moving it from there yeah. um, so the other thing that you need you sh should be doing when you're animating is hardware accelerating your elements so uh, one way to do that is um, kind of called the null transform Z hack, uh, which is to say transform translate Z zero. Now, if you apply another transform, you should keep that in the same line. You have to reapply that Z. If you're using something like GreenSock, they're, they're going to think that you need to hardware accelerate anything that you work with. So you don't have to worry about hardware accelerating. So if you're working, that's another reason why GreenSock's kind of nice is like, I never have to hardware accelerate anything if I'm working with GreenSock. They're just they're going to say, you're going to move this. So I assume you want hardware accelerated. You could say, you know, don't hardware accelerate. You know, they have a flag to like unset that if you want, but basically it's whitelisted instead of blacklisted. And um, if, so um, if you are working with CSS, another thing that you might want to do is say backface visibility hidden. Um, and also uh, you might want to say perspective 1000 PX. And those things will not affect the way that the thing looks on the page, but will let um, 
will basically let the browser know like, hey, I'm going to move this around. And there's a way to debug and see that you're doing this properly. So if you go into Chrome and you go into Chrome DevTools, there's those um, on the right hand top corner, there's three dots. And if you click those three dots, it says there's like a bunch of things that come up in that panel and one of them is rendering. So if you click rendering, you can, um, a, new, a new panel will come up and it says show paint rectangles. If you click on that, anything that you see on the page that has a green rectangle around it is not properly hardware accelerated. And ideally you shouldn't see anything, <laughs> um, even when things are moving around. Got it. Okay. So um, a common situation, I guess, that I run into that I don't know how to handle without um, animating things that I'm not supposed to animate is say you have like a, a box on the screen and you have like a dynamic amount of items in it, just like stacked and you want to add a new item to it. And you want that to sort of like go in place and have everything kind of move out of the way and have like the container grow. Um, mm -hmm. The only way that I've ever been able to like get that working without feeling like I'm resorting to hard coding in heights for parent containers and weird things like that is by doing things like transitioning a negative top margin on an item that's being inserted. And I just feel like that's an evil thing to do based on what I know about um, transitioning stuff. So I guess I'd be interested in knowing what any of the sort of tricks are for trying to sort of translate some of these things that feel like you can only do them with um, non hardware accelerated properties into like transforms and opacity. Sure. And that's a great question. Um, there is a thing uh, that animators use and it's a, it's a premise called flip. Um, it stands for fo uh, first last invert play. And basically what you're doing is you're getting the coordinates of the things that where they are, and then figuring out where they're going to go, and then you invert basically that motion. So you're still using transforms, but you're calculating it in a way that feels a little bit more like the margin top thing. But I will say this, it's complicated to implement. It's not the, it's a little bit clunky to create. I don't like doing it, honestly, even though it's really good. So there's a couple ways that you can abstract this process. And if you wanna write it from scratch, cool, go for it. Um, uh, but if you'd like to abstract this process a little bit, um, David Korshid, um, I think he's David K. Piano on Twitter, um, uh, open sourced a library that helps with flip animations. Um, that's one way of doing it if you want to work with CSS. If you're using something like Vue, there's a thing called a transition group. And that transition group is dope <laughs> as hell. Because what it does is it does all the flip calculations for you. So you're basically applying a couple of transitions um, or you know CSS animations to the elements in a very declarative way. And it's saying basically saying to the thing, as these things move around, figure out all of those flip transitions for me. And it does it for you. And it's really fast. So it's just like, and you know, the thing that's kind of amazing about it is the more elements you have, the more complicated the logic gets. And the more this flip thing really pays off, you can go to the docs for a view and go, there's like a lazy Sudoku game that Chris Fritz built where you can kind of like click it and you, hundreds of elements move around the page and sw swap locations and land perfectly in their new spots. You don't have to do very much at all to make that thing happen. Um, and I just think as an animator, that is like kind of awesome. Uh, so especially having done flip you know, calculations just by hand before, it's really dope. 
That's awesome. Yeah, so I've, I've played with the transition group stuff in Vue a little bit, and this is cool. This is a good opportunity to transition transition uh-huh, into uh, some <laughs> uh, Vue.js stuff. Um, so with the transition group stuff, the only kind of demos that I've built with it have been where I'm just taking like a, a list of items and wrapping that directly in a transition group, and all those items then kind of understand each other and move the way they're supposed to move. But does it also work for like more nested document stuff. So like the example I was talking about, so you have just a div and then in that there's like 10 items and you want to add one more and you know like that parent div has a background color or something and you want that background color to extend. Can I just wrap that parent div in a transition group and it'll kind of intelligently handle all that stuff? You should be wrapping the elements themselves in a transition group. And if you do need to nest things, I don't think that that's a case where you would need to nest things. But if you do need to nest things, you can nest transition group elements. But the transition group works really well if you have things like a V4 loop that goes across a lot of different um, uh, elements. So that V4 gets put inside of the transition group itself, that that component basically. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at uh, Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. We want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't we'd be dealing with it so i've been using rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app nitpick ci and loving it uh, if you want to check it out you can head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days so check that out and uh, thanks again to rollbar for sponsoring full stack radio so you talked about like this flip animation stuff which i've looked into a little bit and something that i've always been trying to understand exactly how it works with the the flip stuff is you have an element and then you're doing something to cause it to be in a new position and then what you're trying to do is figure out okay well this element was over here and now it's over here what transforms could i apply basically to put it back in its original position i think is like the way that it works right and then you sort of like remove that transform so it can transition to its final place yeah yep it's that's kind of the basis of it. Um, if you've ever worked with um, the bounding box of a DOM element, it works a lot with those trying to figure out where the things are on the page so that it can figure out the in-between states, yeah. basically. Yeah. So how do you figure out the the final position of something without actually putting it there? Does the browser give you like a way to sort of preview what that would be without it rendering it right away? Uh, when you're when you're using the transition group, uh, you don't have to figure that out at all. 
But yeah, I mean, if you are doing it by hand, I definitely spend time calculating where things are on the page. So if, let's say I have another, I'm aligning with another element that's already yeah. there, I get the uh, bounding client rect of that other element, and then I can figure out where, you know, basically where that starts and ends and where I'm moving it to based Got on it. that. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And there are, you know, there are times where I have to like iterate. Like I, I get it kind of there, but visually like, like uh, one thing that's kind of a designery dev trick is that circles um, will be exacting with a, uh, with a rectangle. Like they'll be completely lined up, but visually it'll not look like it's lined up. You have to cheat a circle out a little bit in order for it to visually look aligned. And that, that one messed with me for a really long time. That's why I'm bringing it up <laughs> um, because I don't want other people to ha have to reinvent the wheel there. So if, if it looks like it's not lined up when you have a circle and a square, it's not you. It's just a weird visual thing and you have to push the circle out of that bounds a little bit. Got it. Cool. So kind of uh, the final topic that I think I'd be interested to get into is is any sort of tips or tricks that you have for trying to sort of structure and organize your transition and animation code, even specifically with Vue, in sort of the most maintainable way possible? And it's a kind of a broad question, but kind of my motivation for it is I know so many situations I've run into where you just kind of build something in some sort of one-off way that doesn't really interact with the rest of your code base in any way and, and makes it easy to create these like different animations that are all slightly different in different ways and um, you're not kind of keeping things consistent with you know any sort of system for it and stuff um, so i'm wondering about sort of strategies for making that easier uh, in terms of you know creating custom components that layer on top of like the transition component that maybe pre-bake in like a transition or or how you take like a fade in and a fade out and combine those in different places in different ways and make things composable just sort of any ideas or things that you found interesting in trying yeah. to sort of implement this stuff in a way that's as maintainable as it as you can make it that's a great question. And yeah, uh, I definitely do do that. So um, if you're using the transition component in uh, in tandem with um, CSS animation, there's a thing called the name property on that transition component. So what you can do is you can say transition name. I think the common one is fade. Um, there's also, you know, you can make whatever thing that you need. Um, and you can reuse that, that name, you know, uh, that transition component anywhere. Um, and you have these things called uh, transition mode so you can coordinate entrances and exits in a really fluid way so you can create that entire component that says like anytime you use this component it needs to come in like this it needs to come out like this and just literally write transition name whatever it is uh, mode out in and it will do all of the stuff for you it's very reusable um, you can do the same thing with javascript so transition components have javascript hooks um, so uh, you kind of like basically say CSS false, and then there's all sorts of hooks that you can use um, before, for the entrances and exits, and I definitely reuse those components. So um, a lot of times what I'll have is something like, um, for instance, I'll have page transitions in Nuxt. I don't know if you guys know this, but like if you do use Nuxt for server-side rendering and routing, um, it comes equipped with page transitions uh, just hooks so that you can transition the pages in and out the way that you want to. And you can even make an individual page act a little bit different from other pages. So um, 
what I'll do is I'll usually build out a kind of complicated page transition in JavaScript, and that will work for, you know, in, inside my default layout, and it, it will work for all of my subsequent page transitions, and they stay really consistent. Um, so Vue does that really elegantly and very easily and well because everything's componentized. It's very easy to reuse things. Um, if I don't, if I'm not using Vue, like if I'm jumping in a project that's, um, you know, different uh, than Vue, like it doesn't have a Vue build, um, I that uh, animation article that I wrote for 24 Ways that I mentioned about the animation and design systems shows a way to modularize all of those animations. So if you don't have the kind of awesome thing of being able to keep things in components, that you can still write CSS or JavaScript in a way where you can reapply those things in a kind of organized manner. Awesome. Perfect. I'll have to link to that. Um, well, maybe that's a good time to, uh, to start wrapping things up. Um, is there any sort of resources or anything that you would want to share with people who wanted to learn uh, more about this or places you can point them to maybe read some of your work? Yeah, sure. Um, well, one big one is that uh, Valhead and I, Valhead is also another animation expert. Um, she and I do these workshops that are two-day workshops. We did a lot the last few years because we were both consultants, but we both have full-time jobs now. So we're only doing two this year. One is in March in Chicago. Um, and basically with that day, we spend talking about animation theory, talking about CSS animations and doing a deep dive there, doing a, you know, moving over to JavaScript, talking about the difference between a bunch of different libraries. Today we talked about two, but like we go over, you know, the basic, basically the landscape of JavaScript libraries. And then we do a deep dive for GreenSock. Um, and then at the end we talk about React and how to implement animations in React or Vue, um, depending on what people are using in the class. Um, so I highly suggest that one because I think, you know, the students who have gone to it say that they've gotten a lot out of it and uh, that they feel like they can, they go from feeling like they're not sure how to work with web animation to like, oh, okay, I can do this um, uh, in two days. So that's kind of great. Um, I also wrote a book called SVG Animations from O'Reilly. That's if you're really interested in SVG. I don't assume any prior knowledge of SVG in that book. So if you've never touched an SVG before, you can still read it. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of free materials. I'm talking about the paid for stuff, but there's tons of, you know, if you go look at my code pen work is all open source, CSS tricks, I write a million posts for them. So don't also don't feel like, you have to pay for stuff if you are broke. <laughs> um, it just It's just going to be more in written form and stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me about this stuff, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it's it a pleasure being here, and thanks for uh, spending your time talking to me. Uh, where can people sort of find you online if they want to uh, see what you're up to? Yeah, I mean, uh, Twitter I'm pretty active on, so Sarah underscore Edo, E-D-O, um, uh, Sarah with an H. And then um, CodePen, I'm, I'm there all the time. <laughs> awesome. Uh, if anyone is interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 82. Uh, if you wanted to rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always appreciated. Five stars is the minimum number of stars we're currently accepting. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, thanks for checking out another episode of the show, and we'll see you next time.